Hi, it's me, Nastram. This is a bonus episode of The Cost of Happiness, where I speak to author and journalist Dan Lyons. So Lyons has been an established voice in tech journalism for over three decades now, and he's written for the likes of Forbes and Newsweek, and he's also a screenwriter on the hit HBO show Silicon Valley. He's perhaps best known for his 2016 book, Disrupted, My Misadventures in the Startup Bubble. Now, this is a memoir that's based on his time working at tech startup HubSpot, which makes marketing software. In this book, he details his encounters with cult-like leadership and a frat boy environment. And the book really serves as a sharp critique of not just HubSpot, but the tech world at large. And his next book takes this critique even further. It's called Lab Rats, Why Modern Work Makes People Miserable, published in 2009. In it, Lyons warns that the oppressive working culture he witnessed in the tech industry is being rolled out to other businesses as well, including some in the public sector. I really enjoy talking to Dan about his time in the belly of the beast, what we can learn from the story of Tony Shea and entrepreneurs like him, and the persistent notion that tech can change the world. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So I walked into HubSpot for my first day and it was really like nothing I had ever seen before. I had worked in very traditional fields in big magazines, which are mostly 100 years old and the culture was very stable. And here, the first impression I had was that everyone was really, really young. And the other is that there was this big attempt to make work fun. And on my first day, a guy gave me a tour around. Let me show you around the office and where everything is. Here's the kitchen. And it was sort of bright, basic colors. You know, their color was orange and logos and slogans and inspirational stuff everywhere. And um, we had a big game room, you know, with the ping pong tables and foosball. And there was a big kitchen with a candy wall. And this guy made a point of showing me this candy wall, which was just a bunch of tubes, glass tubes, dispensers that were filled with different kinds of candy. There were bouncy ball chairs and beanbag chairs instead of real tables and chairs from in meeting rooms. And it was all open office, so it was noisy. Everybody worked next to each other. But if you needed peace and quiet, you'd go to a meeting room and have a meeting on beanbag chairs. There was a nap room with a hammock, which I think they made just so they could get stories placed in newspapers about how napping was important, and we have a whole nap room. They were very, very aggressive about trying to get attention for their cool culture. I would say it was centered around fun, and it was also very culty. 
you had this orientation that was really not about learning how to use the product, but it was about telling you how special you are to be here. Very few people make it into this company. It's harder to get in here than to get into Harvard. And you must be the best of the best, but now you've got to prove yourself. And we are the best company in the world. The orientation guy actually said, this company changed my life and it will change yours too. So it was very, very culty. And I was sitting there, you know, I'm older and somewhat cynical by nature and thinking, this is complete bullshit. And everybody around me, though, was eating it up. And um, I sometimes say it was a mix between a, a Montessori kindergarten and a frat house and then a Scientology cult center. It had all three of those because there were guys like who would get together at lunchtime and do push-ups. They had a push-up club in the lobby next to the elevators. And the sales guys were mostly like right out of college, mostly lacrosse players, kind of jocks who come to work in shorts and flip-flops and t-shirts and sales was very competitive like a sport they gave them a number and you had to hit your number and if you didn't make it you got fired we had beer everywhere we had beer kegs open 24 7 but then you had this boiler room with hundreds of mostly guys just sitting in rows looking at computers more or less hooked to computers and cold call someone make your spiel they hang up cold call someone the computer just kept feeding you names and numbers and you just cold called all day hoping to get someone on the other end who would say okay i'll talk to a salesperson and those people in that room were under tremendous pressure to make impossible quotas and it was actually very grueling and people got fired all the time so it was this funny dichotomy right between this fun lovable they used the word love a lot and we love this company we're building a company that we love And it wasn't just the boiler room sales guys who got fired a lot. Everybody got fired a lot. There were constantly people being fired. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was all the time, for no reason, with no warning, people would get a call saying, oh, don't come in tomorrow. It was very disconcerting to see those two things side by side. And Dan, something that was striking in your book was the fact that, I recall you said they didn't use the word firing. Yeah, they called it graduation. And they would send around this cheery email that said, Hey, everybody, uh, just want you to know that Greg graduated and we're so psyched to see where he's going to go and his next big rock star adventure with his superpowers. And you would notice in the email that it didn't say where the person was going, which meant they had been blindsided, but it was all very cheery. And this guy's been great. We love him. What a great job he's done here. Great contribution. Really want to thank him. And um, yeah, it was really psychologically messed up. There's so many practices that tech companies are famous for. You talked about the culture of naps and taking rest. Also, companies, they talk of like unlimited vacation. What does this all actually mean in reality? Because I think that now in, you know, 2022, 2023, we're in a very different place where we're seeing the consequences or like the real meaning behind a lot of things that these companies were pioneering, maybe in the early 2010s when it came to company culture. I look back now to... 10 years ago to the, all those offices with the kooky headquarters and the decor. And I think it really looks quaint now and dated and almost like a, a relic of a, a crazy age where the industry sort of lost its mind for a while. So the thing with unlimited vacation it got sold really hard is like, you can work from anywhere, you know, and as long as you get your work done, we don't care how many hours you work. And 
you have unlimited vacation. If you need some time off, just take time you need. You know, you're an adult. We trust you to be responsible. And so salespeople would be told, well, you can take some vacation time, but if you're taking a week off this month, you've got to make your number in three weeks. So there was really no vacation. But the real motivation behind this policy was that if you're a company and you have a traditional method of accruing vacation days, you have to keep a reserve on your books of enough money to cover all of the vacation time that's been accrued by all of your employees. So you put a big bunch of cash aside and have to let it sit there, which, you know, is not in the interest of a startup. They don't want to keep money sitting around doing nothing. And the other thing is that when you fire someone or when they graduate, you don't have to pay them their unearned vacation time. So it's actually not in your interest as a worker. It's sold to you as this wonderful thing until you get fired and you're owed three weeks of vacation, which would be enough money to maybe help you get your next job, and it isn't there. That's one good example of how something that's sold as a benefit is actually not a benefit. I just want to step back a minute and look at the context of the time. So 2010s, I was in my mid-20s back then, and I remember the financial crisis of 2008, so many people also graduating into this bleak job market. And at the same time, in the US, Obama had just been elected. So there was that sense of like, oh, things might change and stuff. And you did look at the tech scene and that whole kind of entrepreneurial scene. And there was that sense of hope. There was that sense of things are happening, things are moving. There was something so attractive about this scene where people are optimistic. I remember um, whilst I was in journalism school, going to one of the first openings for one of the first WeWork spaces. It was a mess, but there was a sense of excitement. There was a sense of purpose. There was a sense of like, you can potentially find your tribe here. And that was really exciting. And I feel like in that context, in that time, the scene tapped into something that was going on culturally. Now, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about that as well. And also kind of where we were culturally then versus where we are now. And I guess how much the tech world has created this sort of landscape we are in now, which feels so different from that sort of optimism. The early 2010s was a big crash. And Silicon Valley has these ups and downs. And during the downs, you know, everybody gets laid off. It's sort of like where we are now. And you have this opportunity as an investor during these times to invest in startups at a very low valuation, basically to get a very good deal on labor. So venture capitalists love the ups because, you know, they're selling their companies at very high valuations. The problem with them in in the kind of market we've been in lately is they also have to pay a lot to get a piece of a startup. It's sort of they win in either way. Now they win by getting really cheap valuations on startups. So even during that dip, when it looks very bad to the outside world, a lot of new companies were being built. HubSpot was one of them. So it was actually a very fertile time for building new companies. And yeah, then there was this divide. And it may be that 2010, the year you point to, was a bigger inflection point than 2000. It was 2000, we had a crash. And then we had a rebuilding cycle for about a decade. Culture didn't really change Yeah, you're right, until this next batch. So this next batch of companies came along and they were the ones that somehow decided that a kooky office was a big thing. They were to some extent covering Google, which had a building with the big slide and all the fun stuff and good food, et cetera, et cetera. 
So yeah, that became a kind of thing. And I think there was a lot of hope. And I remember being a journalist. This is about when my career ended at Newsweek at 2012. You know, we were constantly living for when's the next layoff? When are the next 50 people going to get let go? And you were just always waiting for the axe to fall. It was very depressing. It was very sad to see it dying. And then I was covering all these tech companies like you. I was a tech journalist. So I'm seeing all these people having a blast. And I'm like a kid with my nose pressed against the glass looking in going, wow, I, I should be at one of these places. At various times in my career, I had thought about switching over and going to work at a tech company. And I never had. And finally, I said, well, this time I'm going to because there are no journalism jobs. So I got to HubSpot. And I thought, wow, these guys are really doing some interesting things. So at first, I thought, this is really amazing and innovative. And you're right, there was this big sense of hope. I think there was a generation of people, maybe your generation, millennials, who were told that it was in a way really good, but they were confusing purpose with work. And they were sold this idea that this is your mission in life. That was what the cult stuff was about. And people were looking for a purpose and mission. Everybody is. And maybe in the past, you would have got that from religion, from going to church or from your community or your family. But some of that had all blown up. And so work became this place where you would put all your hope and all your belief. You know, it became a, a, yeah, a belief system. So our mission was to transform the way people did marketing. Okay. Now, on one hand, you could look at what we did and say we were just a grubby company selling email marketing so people could send spam, which is, as a cynical journalist, what I thought we did. And again, as a cynical journalist, I kind of thought, well, that's okay. It's a grubby business, but there's money to be made in it. So let's do it. But it was sold to people as, no, 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 we are killing spam. We're making lives better. Everybody who uses our product, it transforms their business. And, you know, if you expand out, think about how much we're going to make the world better with our marketing software. And it resonated with people. It felt like they came to work every day thinking, yeah, I'm on a mission to do this. Here's another thing that happened to me. I always thought when I covered companies, I always dealt with PR people. And I became friendly with a lot of them. And they would, whatever they said in public, you know, I knew it was rubbish. They knew it was rubbish. Well, I thought as soon as they were back away, behind the curtain, away from us, they all kind of laughed and said, oh my God, they actually believe this stuff. But at this place, they believed it. I was just stunned. They're like, wow, you guys really believe this stuff you're saying. And that made them very vulnerable to exploitation. You know, just the way it would work in a cult. Once you've got people hooked and believing in the mission, you can really take advantage of them. And that's what was happening. And they were young. They were new to the workforce. They were new to work. So they didn't know that anything else had ever existed. Dan, th that's really interesting because I remember a few years ago going to a session led by kind of one, one of these types of people, but they were kind of advising people about career steps. And they were saying how, like, for example, if you make shoes, on your LinkedIn, you should say, we empower people to, I don't know, like move about or whatever, which I kind of thought was really weird. <laughs> you know, just tell me you make good shoes, right? But I don't know how much of it is the culture or is there even pressure from kind of investors that everything you do needs to be transforming the world? Yeah, that was a joke we used a lot on Silicon Valley. There was one episode, there were a bunch of people pitching products in a row and it'd be like, well, we make, you know, some boring kind of chip that does this and this. And then they would add, oh, and 
we're changing the world, <laughs> just, no matter what they're making. There was this rhetoric that I think was appealing to people. Look, Uber changed the world. It's magical that you can go press a button and a car shows up in seven minutes and takes you wherever you want to go. I mean, that is amazing. But Uber did this on the backs of people who were not treated very well. Amazon changed the world. I mean, God, you can go on your browser and order a bunch of stuff. And sometimes that same day, that stuff shows up at your house. So th there are great things. And people do harness themselves to that. And I also think there was this big misread on millennials that millennials th themselves fell for, which was, I remember these days, and people in HR would say, well, millennials are really motivated by mission, not money. That's what they really want is purpose. And I think it was a misread because later after Disrupted, I wrote another book where I interviewed a lot of people, millennials, and they said, well, I'm 28. I've had four jobs since graduating from college and I've never had health benefits. And all I really want is a job with health benefits. The whole mission thing had sort of run out of gas when they realized like, oh, something, I really want to be able to buy a house. 2018, 20, the late 2010s. Oh, wait a minute. I've never been a real employee. I've only been a contractor. And they make you contractors so they don't have to provide you with benefits. Google, something like half of the workforce at Google were not employees. They were contractors. They were employees, but they weren't employed by Google. So anyway, yeah, a lot of people in that generation, I think the, the scales fell from their eyes when they realized that they were never going to get health insurance. I guess maybe your listeners will know this, but you know, in the United States, your health insurance is tied to your job. And so if you don't get health insurance through your employer, you pay a huge amount of money to get it on your own. So it's a real driving force for job choices here. Dan, I wanted to know, how would you describe the tech scene's their conception of a good workplace? I think it was very much driven by fun, which was you should really love to come to work because it's a blast to be at work and you never want to leave work. You just want to stay here all the time. It's a continuation of university culture. So that was seen as a good workplace. They would talk a lot about this phrase culture fit, which was, you know, we like to hire people for culture fit. And some people would say, I like to hire people that I'd like to go with for a beer with after work. But what happened then with culture fit is you had this motto culture. And I think for a lot of people, that felt very comfortable. And these were young, white, middle-class kids. They were just all the same age. They were all white. They were all the same kind of Caucasian. They were very conformist. I had never worked in a place with a monoculture. So I was stunned. I was really stunned to see this. And then I later discovered that that was the case across a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And it remains the case. The lack of diversity is stunning. When you got to HubSpot, it was, you know, very, very young people. With, I think it was more that they had no experience. And they became managers. And then they were very capricious. They would fire people because they didn't like someone. You know, in our business, gray hair and experience are really overrated. <laughs> and I were thinking, oh, okay, now I get why everybody treats me like a moron. How about in terms of, this is something that comes up when we look into the downtown project a lot, but how about sort of the culture of being able to voice concerns or speak up about things? Of course, management would always say, the thing they say, I don't want to be surrounded by, yes, man, I want to have people who tell me the truth and come and give me the hard truth. But 
it was definitely never good to ever point out anything. And if you did, you, you should point it out in the way that says, hey, this is great. I love what we do. I have this idea of the way we could, you know, add to that or make things better. But you never just said, this is a problem. So, Dan, I'm wondering, you've been describing this company culture, which there, there's a lot of parallels with somewhere like the Downtown Project as well. I wanted to know, how do you think this sort of company culture has impacted the workplace today? I think there was a big backlash. I think it was the pandemic that broke it. I mean, in 2018, I published a book called Lab Rats, which was a follow-on to, to Disrupted, saying, because the big damage that I saw happening in Disrupted was that it wasn't just that you lost your job. It was that you were left really psychologically damaged, devastated. People, and it wasn't just me, it was happening everywhere. It was a new kind of trauma caused by work. You know, you'd leave with your self-esteem in tatters, and it would take a long time for people to get over it. And when I wrote Lab Rats, it was still thinking, this is how it is, and I sort of have ideas for how it could be better, but how will you get people to do it? You know, how will you get companies to actually change things in a way that gives people really what they really want, which is not foosball and ping pong and beer, right? And even I went around and gave a lot of talks at the time and people would say, how are we going to do this? And I, I sort of thought, well, at the time, well, maybe it'll be unions because unions have been decimated. But, you know, the pandemic was the break, which, of course, you couldn't see coming. But that really tilted the well, tilted the balance of power, but, you know, it also made people think, why am I doing this? And I think the great resignation was in itself a collective bargaining. It was a, it was a labor action, but it was decentralized, which in a way is ironic because it was facilitated by the internet. But along with that came other, other things. So, so for example, the, the question now is, how can we get everybody back into the office? And they're all sort of wondering how we can do this. And I'd be like, we'll make the office much better. You know, why don't you maybe make work better, make people really want to work here and maybe they'll come back in, you know, when it was over and people wanted to remain remote. It was a research company funded by Slack, the tech company. And they did a lot of surveys and research and they found that who wants to stay remote? Black workers more than white workers wanted to stay remote. Women more than men wanted to continue working remotely. And then, I don't think anybody put this together, but it was like, what does that say about your culture? You know, what is that telling you about your in-office experience that all of your people have been having? And maybe if you want people to come back, you better address those concerns. And among others, you know, like maybe you really should have on-site childcare. There's a great anecdote I heard from someone I knew who had been at Apple for a long time when Tim Cook was showing her the plans for that spaceship headquarters that they built this. They spent a fortune building this right before the pandemic. And he was telling her how great this is. Now, Tim Cook is, a, I guess, an athlete, likes to work out. He's very fit. And he said, to her, look at this gym. Look at the gym we're going to have. This is an amazing gym. It has this and this and this and this. And she said, Tim, the gym's fine. But like, you know what I need? I need daycare. You know, that's what I really need. And he looked at her for a second and then was like, okay, but look at this gym. <laughs> look at how great this gym is. And I don't know why, you know, why, why did you not hear that? Why did you not? And because and also you could afford it. 
you could afford to do anything. You're Apple, right? So I think there has been an awakening now to some of these situations. The interesting thing is I think what's happening now at Twitter with Elon Musk, which has really laid bare because he's doing everything very much in public and in a very extreme way doing a version of the bad side of things. So, so there's no more ping pong and beer. So now you just see the bad side and now they're not even afraid to hide it anymore. And now you realize that all those stories you heard about what it was like to work at Tesla and that all the lawsuits, well, about racism and about poor treatment in general, oh, those are all true. <laughs> that really is what was going on because now we can see it happening in public at Twitter. I like to think that people are no longer going to tolerate this. I mean, look at Amazon warehouse workers. They've been treated really poorly. And it's appalling because, you know, they're doing this in service to the, one of the richest people in the world who could easily double all their pay and, you know, treat them way better. But I think they accept it because, well, what is our choice? So maybe the difference is they've taken away all the shiny objects that they were dangling with and distracting you with and now just openly saying, well, look, here's the deal. And not all. I think there are tech companies and there are a new generation of tech companies that I think maybe are building healthier cultures. But I don't know. Dan, is there anything we haven't talked about about related to sort of the tech seed and company culture and the impact that has had on us? Were this culture has led to much bigger problems. So, for example, I think Brexit and Trumpism, the rise of MAGA, all grows out of this. First of all, I think there's been this sort of madness or psychological damage at a societal level and economic damage at a societal level. I think you pushed people far enough and took enough away from them that now they fall for demagoguery. They, they are almost seeking authoritarianism. So, yeah, I think the really, really bad effects of this work culture have yet to be felt. For example, you have people like Peter Thiel, who are the early proponents whose thinking led to this kind of work culture. I don't think it's an accident that Peter Thiel is also in favor of authoritarianism. So, yeah, I don't think we've even yet seen the full bad effect of what will happen because of the way in which we changed how people work. We changed the relationship between labor and capital in ways that are going to really, really cause big, big problems. Just on that point, a lot of the people we're talking about who are workers of these companies, they might not fit into your typical sort of Brexit voter or MAGA supporter or something. Do you mean in terms of how these companies have changed work culture or how they've kind of changed society more broadly? So, for example, when right around the year 2000 or so, I interviewed the new CEO at GE, Jeffrey Immelt, and more like, well, you're the new guy. What do you think? What, do you, what are your big initiatives? And his big thing was, we're going to embrace the internet in a huge way. And he said, no, no, no. We're going to take all of our work, like our intellectual work, and we're going to put that in India. And we're going to just offshore all of that. It's going to save us so much money. And he thought, oh, cool. Wow, that's very cool, right? And then you realize, okay, GE then outsourced a lot of jobs and laid off tens of thousands of people who mostly they often focused on union workers. And then the world said to them, okay, you've lost your really good job at GE or GM or whatever, right? Uh, because manufacturing all went to China. 
So you see the GDP of India and China over those years just soar, which is great, right? So you have this large number of people, tens of thousands of people who've lost basically their ability to have a middle-class life. And then Silicon Valley comes and says, oh, but wait, we're going to create new jobs. It's the gig economy. So you can drive an Uber. You can deliver food, right? And you replace something that was really, really good with something really bad and exploitative. And, and that was sold as like, it's great to work at Uber because you can make your own hours. You're your own boss. You're an entrepreneur. It's like, no, I, I really liked my job as a computer programmer at GE, you know? So we created this large, large mass of people who had been economically destroyed is too strong a word, but had been really harmed, who became bitter and angry. And those people, I think, to some extent became, not all, but led to this uprising. And they were easily hoodwinked by someone like Trump, who they saw as their hero. He was going to get all the manufacturing jobs back. So they easily snookered into that. People now working inside tech companies, I think all tend to, to lean liberal. So it hasn't happened there. But I think the practices, it was two things from Silicon Valley. One was the technology itself allowed or enabled outsourcing to happen, right? Jeffrey Immelt couldn't have moved those jobs except that he had the internet and Silicon Valley kept making the routers and the fiber networks fast enough that you could do more and more and more. But then the other thing was while that was happening, Silicon Valley led by these sort of libertarian, you know, Anne Rand reading people like Peter Thiel created this new work culture that was very exploitative. And then those companies started disrupting established businesses and established companies said, we need to become more like a startup. They would literally send people to Silicon Valley and what they called Silicon safaris to go visit startups and learn from them. So the toxic culture that was confined to tech companies seeped into all these other company cultures, which led again to let's treat people worse. Let's take as much away from them as we can. If you're going to keep up with Amazon, how do you keep up with Amazon unless you brutalize your workers as much as they do? So you had this overall trend of making work worse. And both in terms of every day when you went to work, it was a bad experience. But then the, the compensation you received for it became less and less and less. So you became less happy and less well-paid at the same time. I think it created more than an economic effect. I think there was a psychological effect across the culture. And so right around the time when I was writing Disrupted, there's a great essay you can find. Maybe you should interview this guy named Nick Hanauer. He was grew up rich in Seattle, inherited a family business, and then was the first investor in Amazon. So it became incredibly rich. And he wrote this thing saying, dear fellow plutocrats, the pitchforks are coming for us. And he sort of foresaw this, like, unless we change this capitalism, there's going to be civil wars, you know, there'll be, you know, revolution. And I think in a way, the MAGA stuff is that revolution. It is sort of off with their heads. It's aimed at just, we're angry at the elites, we're angry at somebody. So let's just ruin the machine. Dan, that was great. That's a massive point to end on. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can purchase all of Dan's books from your favorite retailer and his latest book, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World, will be released in July 2023. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to The Cost of Happiness. Please spread the word and leave a review. It's been one hell of a ride. Until next time, I'll see you around. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.